Part One, Chapter Fourteen of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part One, Chapter Fourteen Experience in St. Michael's. St. Michael's, the village in which was now my new home, compared favorably with villages in slave states generally, at this time, 1833. There were a few comfortable dwellings in it, but the place as a whole wore a dull, slovenly, enterprise-forsaken aspect. The mass of the buildings were of wood, they had never enjoyed the artificial adornment of paint, and time and storms had worn off the bright color of the wood, leaving them almost as black as buildings charred by a conflagration. St. Michael's had, in former years, enjoyed some reputation as a shipbuilding community, but that business had almost entirely given place to oyster-fishing for the Baltimore and Philadelphia markets, a course of life highly unfavorable to morals, industry, and manners. Miles River was broad, and its oyster-fishing grounds were extensive, and the fishermen were, during autumn, winter, and spring, often out all day and a part of the night. This exposure was an excuse for carrying with them, in considerable quantities, spirituous liquors, the then supposed best antidote for cold. Each canoe was supplied with its jug of rum, and tippling among this class of the citizens became general. This drinking habit, in an ignorant population, fostered coarseness, vulgarity, and an indolent disregard for the social improvement of the place, so that it was admitted by the few sober-thinking people who remained there, that St. Michael's was an unsaintly as well as unsightly place. I went to St. Michael's to live in March, 1833. I know the year because it was the one succeeding the first cholera in Baltimore, and was also the year of that strange phenomenon when the heavens seemed about to part with their starry train. I witnessed this gorgeous spectacle and was awestruck. The air seemed filled with bright descending messengers from the sky. It was about daybreak when I saw this sublime scene. I was not without the suggestion at the moment that it might be the harbinger of the coming of the Son of Man, and in my then state of mind I was prepared to hail him as my friend and deliverer. I had read that the stars shall fall from heaven, and they were now falling. I was suffering very much in my mind. It did seem that every time the young tendrils of my affection became attached, they were rudely broken by some unnatural outside power, and I was looking away to heaven for the rest denied me on earth. But to my story. It was now more than seven years since I had lived with Master Thomas Old, in the family of my old master, Captain Anthony, on the home plantation of Colonel Lloyd. I knew him then as the husband of old master's daughter. I had now to know him as my master. All my lessons concerning his temper and disposition, and the best methods of pleasing him, were yet to be learned. Slaveholders, however, were not very ceremonious in approaching a slave, and my ignorance of the new material in the shape of a master was but transient nor was my new mistress long in making known her animus. Unlike Miss Lucretia, whom I remembered with the tenderness which departed blessings leave, Mrs. Rowena Auld was as cold and cruel as her husband was stingy, and possessed the power to make him as cruel as herself, while she could easily descend to the level of his meanness. As long as I lived in Mr. Hugh Auld's family, in whatever changes came over them, there had always been a bountiful supply of food. Now, for the first time in seven years, I realized the pitiless pinchings of hunger. 
so wretchedly starved were we that we were compelled to live at the expense of our neighbors or to steal from the home larder this was a hard thing to do but after much reflection i reasoned myself into the conviction that there was no other way to do and that after all there was no wrong in it considering that my labor and person were the property of master thomas and that i was deprived of the necessaries of life necessaries obtained by my own labor it was easy to deduce the right to supply myself with what was my own it was simply appropriating what was my own to the use of my master since the health and strength derived from such food were exerted in his service to be sure this was stealing according to the law and gospel i heard from the pulpit but i had begun to attach less importance to what dropped from that quarter on such points it was not always convenient to steal from master and the same reason why I might innocently steal from him did not seem to justify me in stealing from others. In the case of my master, it was a question of removal, the taking his meat out of one tub and putting it in another. The ownership of the meat was not affected by the transaction. At first he owned it in the tub, and last he owned it in me. His meat-house was not always open. There was a strict watch kept in that point, and the key was carried in Mrs. Auld's pocket. We were oftentimes severely pinched with hunger, when meat and bread were mouldering under lock and key. This was so, when she knew we were nearly half-starved, and yet, with saintly air, she would each morning kneel with her husband and pray that a merciful God would bless them in basket and store, and save them at last in his kingdom. But I proceed with my argument. It was necessary that the right to steal from others should be established and this could only rest upon a wider range of generalization than that which supposed the right to steal from my master. It was some time before I arrived at this clear right. To give some idea of my train of reasoning, I will state the case as I laid it out in my mind. I am, I thought, not only the slave of Master Thomas, but I am the slave of society at large. Society at large has bound itself, in form and in fact, to assist Master Thomas in robbing me of my rightful liberty, and of the just reward of my labor. Therefore, whatever rights I have against Master Thomas, I have equally against those confederated with him in robbing me of liberty. As society has marked me out as privileged plunder, on the principle of self-preservation, I am justified in plundering in turn. Since each slave belongs to all, all must therefore belong to each. I reasoned further that within the bounds of his just earnings the slave was fully justified in helping himself to the gold and silver and the best apparel of his master, or that of any other slaveholder, and that such taking was not stealing in any just sense of the word. The morality of free society could have no application to slave society. Slaveholders made it almost impossible for the slave to commit any crime, known either to the laws of God or to the laws of man. If he stole, he but took his own. If he killed his master, he only imitated the heroes of the revolution. Slaveholders I held to be individually and collectively responsible for all the evils which grew out of the horrid relation, and I believed they would be so held in the sight of God. To make a man a slave was to rob him of moral responsibility. Freedom of choice is the essence of all accountability but my kind readers are probably less concerned about what were my options than about that which were more nearly touched by my personal experience, albeit my opinions have, in some sort, been the outgrowth of my experience. 
When I lived with Captain Auld, I thought him incapable of a noble action. His leading characteristic was intense selfishness. I think he was himself fully aware of this fact, and often tried to conceal it. Captain Auld was not born a slaveholder. He was not a birthright member of the slaveholding oligarchy. He was only a slaveholder by marriage right, and of all slaveholders these were by far the most exacting. There was in him all the love of domination, the pride of mastery, and the swagger of authority. But his rule lacked the vital element of consistency. He could be cruel, but his methods of showing it were cowardly, and evincing his meanness rather than his spirit. His commands were strong, his enforcements weak. Slaves were not insensible to the whole-souled qualities of a generous, dashing slaveholder, who was fearless of consequences, and they preferred a master of this bold and daring kind, even with the risk of being shot down for impudence, to the fretful little soul who never used the lash, but at the suggestion of a love of gain. Slaves, too, readily distinguish between the birthright bearing of the original slaveholder and the assumed attitudes of the accidental slaveholder and while they could have no respect for either, they despised the latter more than the former. The luxury of having slaves to wait upon him was new to Master Thomas, and for it he was wholly unprepared. He was a slaveholder, without the ability to hold or manage his slaves. Failing to command their respect, both himself and wife were ever on the alert, lest some indignity should be offered them by the slaves. It was in the month of August, 1833, when I had become almost desperate under the treatment of Master Thomas, and entertained more strongly than ever the oft-repeated determination to run away, that a circumstance occurred which seemed to promise brighter and better days for us all. At a Methodist camp-meeting, held in the Bay Side, a famous place for camp-meetings, about eight miles from St. Michael's, Master Thomas came out with a profession of religion. He had long been an object of interest to the church, and to the ministers, as I had seen by the repeated visits and lengthy exhortations of the latter. He was a fish quite worth catching, for he had money and standing. In the community of St. Michael's he was equal to the best citizen. He was strictly temperate, and there was little to do for him in order to give him the appearance of piety and to make him a pillar of the church. Well, the camp meeting continued a week. People gathered from all parts of the country, and two steamboats came loaded from Baltimore. The ground was happily chosen, seats were arranged, a stand erected and a rude altar fronting the preacher's stand, fenced in, with straw in it, making a soft kneeling place for the accommodation of mourners. This place would have held at least one hundred persons. In front and on the sides of the preacher's stand, and outside the long rows of seats, rose the first class of stately tents, each vying with the other in strength, neatness, and capacity for accommodation. Behind this first circle of tents was another, less imposing, which reached around the campground to the speaker's stand. Outside this second class of tents were covered wagons, ox-carts, and vehicles of every shape and size. These served as tents for their owners. Outside of these, huge fires were burning in all directions, where roasting and boiling and frying were going on, for the benefit of those who were attending to their spiritual welfare within the circle. Behind the preacher's stand, a narrow space was marked out for the use of the colored people. There were no seats provided for this class of persons, and if the preachers addressed them at all, it was in an aside. 
After the preaching was over, at every service, an invitation was given to mourners to come forward into the pen, and in some cases ministers went out to persuade men and women to come in. By one of these ministers, Master Thomas was persuaded to go inside the pen. I was deeply interested in that matter, and followed, and though colored people were not allowed either in the pen or in front of the preacher's stand, I ventured to take my stand at a sort of halfway place between the blacks and whites, where I could distinctly see the movements of the mourners, and especially the progress of Master Thomas. If he has got religion, thought I, he will emancipate his slaves, or, if he should not do as much as this, he will at any rate behave towards us more kindly, and feed us more generously than he has heretofore done appealing to my own religious experience, and judging my master by what was true in my case, I could not regard him as soundly converted, unless some such good results followed his profession of religion. But in my expectations I was doubly disappointed. Master Thomas was Master Thomas still. The fruits of his righteousness were to show themselves in no such way as I had anticipated. His conversion was not to change his relation toward men, at any rate not toward black men, but toward God. My faith, I confess, was not great. There was something in his appearance that in my mind cast a doubt over his conversion. Standing where I did, I could see his every movement. I watched very narrowly while he remained in the pen, and although I saw that his face was extremely red and his hair dishevelled, and though I heard him groan, and saw a stray tear halting on his cheek, as if inquiring, Which way shall I go? I could not wholly confide in the genuineness of the conversion. The hesitating behavior of that teardrop and its loneliness distressed me, and cast a doubt upon the whole transaction, of which it was a part. But people said, Captain Auld has come through, and it was for me to hope for the best. I was bound in charity to do this, for I too was religious, and had been in the church full three years, although now I was not more than sixteen years old. Slaveholders may sometimes have confidence in the piety of some of their slaves, but slaves seldom have confidence in the piety of their masters. He can't go to heaven without blood on his skirts, was a settled point in the creed of every slave one which rose superior to all teachings to the contrary, and stood forever as a fixed fact. The highest evidence of his acceptance with God, which the slaveholder could give the slave, was the emancipation of his slaves. This was proof to us that he was willing to give up all to God, and for the sake of God, and not to do this, was, in our estimation, an evidence of hard-heartedness, and was wholly inconsistent with the idea of genuine conversion. I have read somewhere, in the Methodist discipline, the following question and answer. Question. What shall be done for the extirpation of slavery? Answer. We declare that we are as much as ever convinced of the great evil of slavery. Therefore, no slaveholder shall be eligible to any official station in our church. These words sounded in my ears for a long time, and encouraged me to hope. But, as I have before said, I was doomed to disappointment. Master Thomas seemed to be aware of my hopes and expectations concerning him. I have thought before now that he looked at me in answer to my glances, as much as to say, I will teach you, young man, that though I have parted with my sins, I have not parted with my sense. I shall hold my slaves, and go to heaven too. There was always a scarcity of good nature about the man 
but now his whole countenance was soured all over with the seemings of piety and he became more rigid and stringent in his exactions if religion had any effect at all on him it made him more cruel and hateful in all his ways do i judge him harshly god forbid captain ald made the greatest professions of piety his house was literally a house of prayer in the morning and in the evening loud prayers and hymns were heard there in which both himself and wife joined yet no more nor better meal was distributed at the quarters no more attention was paid to the moral welfare of the kitchen and nothing was done to make us feel that the heart of master thomas was one whit better than it was before he went into the little pen opposite the preacher's stand on the campground our hopes too founded on the discipline soon vanished for he was taken into the church at once and before he was out of his term of probation he led in class he quite distinguished himself among the brethren as a fervent exhorter his progress was almost as rapid as the growth of the fabled vine of jack and the beanstalk no man was more active in revivals or would go more miles to assist in carrying them on and in getting outsiders interested in religion his house being one of the holiest in st michael's became the preacher's home they evidently liked to share his hospitality for while he starved us he stuffed them three or four of these ambassadors not unfrequently being there at a time and all living on the fat of the land while we in the kitchen were worse than hungry not often did we get a smile of recognition from these holy men they seemed about as unconcerned about our getting to heaven as about our getting out of slavery to this general charge i must make one exception the reverend george cookman unlike reverend messrs storks ury nicky humphrey and cooper all of whom were on the st michael's circuit he kindly took an interest in our temporal and spiritual welfare our souls and our bodies were alike sacred in his sight and he really had a good deal of genuine anti-slavery feeling mingled with his colonization ideas there was not a slave in our neighborhood who did not love and venerate mr cookman it was pretty generally believed that he had been instrumental in bringing one of the largest slaveholders in that neighborhood mr samuel harrison to emancipate all his slaves and the general impression about mr cookman was that whenever he met slaveholders he labored faithfully with them as a religious duty to induce them to liberate their bondmen when this good man was at our house we were all sure to be called in to prayers in the morning and he was not slow in making inquiries as to the state of our minds nor in giving us a word of exhortation and of encouragement great was the sorrow of all the slaves when this faithful preacher of the gospel was removed from the circuit he was an eloquent preacher and possessed what few ministers south of mason and dixon's line possessed or dared to show viz a warm and philanthropic heart this mr cookman was an englishman by birth and perished on board the ill-fated steamship president while on his way to england but to my experience with master thomas after his conversion in baltimore i could occasionally get into a sabbath school amongst the free children and receive lessons with the rest but having already learned to read and write i was more a teacher than a scholar even there when however i went back to the eastern shore and was at the house of master thomas i was not allowed either to teach or to be taught the whole community among the whites with but one exception frowned upon everything like imparting instruction either to slaves or to free colored persons 
That single exception, a pious young man named Wilson, asked me one day if I would like to assist him in teaching a little Sabbath school at the house of a free colored man named James Mitchell. The idea to me was a delightful one, and I told him that I would gladly devote to that most laudable work as many of my Sabbaths as I could command. Mr. Wilson soon mustered up a dozen old spelling books and a few testaments, and we commenced operations with some twenty pupils in our school. Here, thought I, is something worth living for. Here is a chance for usefulness. The first Sunday passed delightfully, and I spent the week after very joyously. I could not go to Baltimore, where was the little company of young friends who had been so much to me there, and from whom I felt parted forever. But I could make a little Baltimore here. At our second meeting I learned there were some objections to the existence of our school, and surely enough we had scarcely got to work, good work, simply teaching a few colored children how to read the gospel of the Son of God, when in rushed a mob, headed by two class leaders, Mr. Wright Fairbanks and Mr. Garrison West, and with them Master Thomas. They were armed with sticks and other missiles, and drove us off, commanding us never again to meet for such a purpose. One of this pious crew told me that as for me, I wanted to be another Nat Turner, and that if I did not look out, I should get as many balls in me as Nat did into him. Thus ended the Sabbath school, and the reader will not be surprised that this conduct, on the part of class leaders and professedly holy men, did not serve to strengthen my religious convictions. The cloud over my St. Michael's home grew heavier and blacker than ever. It was not merely the agency of Master Thomas in breaking up our Sabbath school that shook my confidence in the power of that kind of southern religion to make men wiser or better, but I saw in him all the cruelty and meanness after his conversion which he had exhibited before that time. His cruelty and meanness were especially displayed in his treatment of my unfortunate cousin Henny, whose lameness made her a burden to him. I have seen him tie up this lame and maimed woman, and whip her in a manner most brutal and shocking. And then, with blood-chilling blasphemy, he would quote the passage of Scripture. That servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. He would keep this lacerated woman tied up by her wrists to a bolt in the joist, three, four, and five hours at a time. He would tie her up early in the morning, whip her with a cowskin before breakfast, leave her tied up, go to his store, and return to dinner, repeat the castigation, laying the rugged lash on flesh already raw by repeated blows. He seemed desirous to get the poor girl out of existence, or at any rate off his hands. In proof of this, he afterwards gave her away to his sister Sarah, Mrs. Klein, but as in the case of Mr. Hugh, Henny was soon returned on his hands. Finally, upon a pretense that he could do nothing for her, I use his own words, he set her adrift to take care of herself. Here was a recently converted man, holding with tight grasp the well-framed and able-bodied slaves left him by old master, the persons who in freedom could have taken care of themselves, yet turning loose the only cripple among them virtually to starve and die. No doubt had Master Thomas been asked by some pious northern brother why he held slaves. His reply would have been precisely that which many another slaveholder had returned to the same inquiry, viz., I hold my slaves for their own good. 
the many differences springing up between master thomas and myself owing to the clear perception i had of his character and the boldness with which i defended myself against his capricious complaints led him to declare that i was unsuited to his wants that my city life had affected me perniciously that in fact it had almost ruined me for every good purpose and had fitted me for everything bad one of my greatest faults or offences was that of letting his horse get away and go down to the farm which belonged to his father-in-law the animal had a liking for that farm with which i fully sympathized whenever i let it out it would go dashing down the road to mr hamilton's as if going on a grand frolic my horse gone of course i must go after it the explanation of our mutual attachment to the place is the same the horse found good pasturage and i found there plenty of bread mr hamilton had his faults but starving his slaves was not one of them he gave food in abundance and of excellent quality in mr hamilton's cook aunt mary i found a generous and considerate friend she never allowed me to go there without giving me bread enough to make good the deficiencies of a day or two master thomas at last resolved to endure my behaviour no longer he could keep neither me nor his horse we liked so well to be at his father-in-law's farm i had lived with him nearly nine months and he had given me a number of severe whippings without any visible improvement in my character or conduct and now he was resolved to put me out as he said to be broken there was in the bay side very near the campground where my master received his religious impressions a man named edward covey who enjoyed the reputation of being a first-rate hand at breaking young negroes this covey was a poor man a farm renter and his reputation of being a good hand to break in slaves was of immense pecuniary advantage to him since it enabled him to get his farm tilled with very little expense compared with what it would have cost him otherwise some slaveholders thought it an advantage to let mr covey have the government of their slaves a year or two almost free of charge for the sake of the excellent training they had under his management like some horse-breakers noted for their skill who ride the best horses in the country without expense mr covey could have under him the most fiery bloods of the neighbourhood for the simple reward of returning them to their owners well broken added to the natural fitness of mr covey for the duties of his profession he was said to enjoy religion and he was as strict in the cultivation of piety as he was in the cultivation of his farm i was made aware of these traits in his character by some one who had been under his hand and while i could not look forward to going to him with any degree of pleasure i was glad to get away from st michael's i believed i should get enough to eat at covey's even if i suffered in other respects and this to a hungry man is not a prospect to be regarded with indifference end of chapter fourteen